Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 161, The Long-Wished-For Day. On August 17th, 1485, at Long Mountain, near Welshpool, Rhys Ap Thomas and his soldiers committed their support to Henry Tudor, offering their loyalty, and in exchange, Rhys gained South Wales. He was not the only one to arrive at Long Mountain, as more minor Welsh nobles joined Henry's forces with their own small band of troops, adding to his needed throng. As well, they brought supplies, including cattle and other foodstuff, to help feed the growing army. With these new additions, Henry crossed the border and cast his die in England as he headed to Shrewsbury. The town made famous as the site of Hotspur's failed uprising, and the town, which had been heavily involved in Welsh affairs for hundreds of years, became the site of Henry Tudor's ascendancy. In practical terms, the town was run by Richard's loyalists. Town bailiff Richard Mitten initially held out against the Tudors. Rather than trying to siege the town, Henry used diplomacy, including the arrival of local nobles who supported Tudor, to talk sense into Mitten, including a pro-Tudor letter from Sir William Stanley. Eventually, he allowed them to camp in and around the town, and the entire situation went on without incident. Mitten may have seen his loyalty besmirched by Richard later, but there was little he, he would be able to say if the locals were with Henry. He had initially said they would only enter the town with him laying on his belly, a term for saying over his dead body, in other words. To fulfill the exact portion of his commitment, it was said that he laid down in the dirt as they marched in, and Henry specifically stepped over him to help Mitten keep his honor, at least in the medieval sense. Whether this story is fully true, we're not too sure, but a number of similar incidents during the medieval period happened enough times that some historians think it likely true. Certainly Mitten was a Richard loyalist and would have been in an awkward situation later had Richard survived, so to appear to have fulfilled the letter of his statement would have been seen as good enough, certainly by the Tudors. I highly doubt that Richard would have seen it that same way. King Richard, on the other hand, had initially rejoiced at Henry's arrival and initial lack of recruiting success in Wales. His flood of troops, which probably both Richard and Henry thought might happen, was more like a trickle of supporters. But that perspective would change as time went on. As Henry moved unimpeded through Wales, Richard began to anger. It was said by some that Richard began to call for the destruction of those in Wales who supported Tudor, calling for vengeance down on various Lancastrian nobles supporting him, and in some cases there was comments that Richard was actually calling for the destruction of the Welsh population over their support of Henry. 
This, of course, is from ballads, which are not sources to be trusted, but I can imagine that the king was less than happy to see Tudor getting a free pass. The Stanley family began in varying degrees to come to the aid of the Tudors. William openly supported him, and Thomas, hamstrung by the capture of his son, passively lacking to do much of anything for Richard. He had delayed his forces on the way to Nottingham, claiming that he was guarding the way to London from Tudor, something that, of course, would need to be done for fear that Tudor would turn south and gain London before Richard. But at the same time, it is a suspicious comment and idea. The king also knew that Thomas had no reason beyond the capture of his son to remain loyal. As he had been passive during previous rebellions, he had mostly hoped that he could at least remain sidelined. All the while, the Stanleys and Margaret Beaufort and her allies were gathering for the Tudor banner. Slowly, the tide was starting to turn in for Henry in the midst of his arrival in England. But let's be clear, the tide might be turning, but the amount of people showing up to his banner was not as large as it was for Richard. Richard had a much bigger military at every point in this story, so Henry was still in a bind and still needed his stepfather to come through for him. One noble of importance arrived in the Tudor camp with Sir Richard Corbett, bringing a few hundred men with him. The stepson of William Stanley arrived. Corbett had been a well-known Lancastrian noble in the area and certainly had a lot of pull with the local community. And he had been wise enough to be one of those who continued in his position even after the end of Henry VI. To quote the family's history, Sir Richard Corbett of Morton, who had been a stout Lancastrian and evinced of his attachment to the Earl, this being Henry Tudor, on the former occasion by rescuing him from imminent danger at the Battle of Banbury, I could find zero evidence of this happening outside of this comment, but nonetheless, joined the Earl immediately upon his entry into Shrewsbury. He even went with hazardous length to take the oath of allegiance and collected a band of 800 gentlemen who accompanied the Earl to the field of Redmore or Bosworth. Henry, meanwhile, continued to court the Stanleys in hope of gaining their help in the battle to come. On August 19th, it was suggested that he met with William outside of Shrewsbury. There is no record of what was said or agreed to at that point, but William was already favoring Henry, and it would have been a cordial discussion, to say the least. Thomas's troops had shadowed Henry since Shrewsbury, but every time the Tudor forces came close, the Stanleys withdrew, keeping both sides slightly on edge in a way similar to what had happened with Resap Thomas. Effectively, it's as if they were trying to make sure that Henry actually had the forces he needed, that he was actually a serious contender, and thus the reason why there were some similarities here. That after the fact, family histories of both parties present the Stanleys and Ap Thomas as already in Henry's camp is something of a rewriting of history, I would argue. But there did seem to be a lot of bets that were being hedged at this point as to who to follow and who to support. And as we've seen in past instances, the Stanleys have been very circumspect about their support for any particular king or leader or rebel pending how it affected and financed them. On the 20th, Henry entered Lichfield and in so doing now placed himself between the king and London along the old Roman road of Watling Street, better known as the A5 motorway today. It was at this point that 
the king made his move with his troops, leaving Nottingham and arriving in Leicester, putting him in range to intercept Tudor before he could make any more move forward towards London. As Sunday began, August 21st, 1485, both parties had gathered considerable forces of arms. In Henry's camp was about 5,000 soldiers, mostly made up of common people with a few minor nobles, and of course, made up of French mercenaries, disaffected Yorkists, and Lancastrian loyalists from Wales and the surrounding marches. The highest level of supporter was the Earl of Oxford, a powerful noble and one of the few on Henry's side at this point. Stanley's army continued to shadow Tudor's, doing nothing to impede him, but also not coming on side either. They ranged at about 3,000 soldiers. King Richard's army, on the other hand, continued to grow and featured, and unfortunately the estimates are rather broad to say the least, as low as 7,500 soldiers or possibly as high as 15,000 soldiers. So we're talking almost a two doubling of the amount. So unfortunately, there's no real way to know. Most of the evidence from the battle sites that we've been able to find through archaeology and, and different other means have shown that there was a great battle, that there was a lot of people killed, but there was no evidence to show the amount on either side nor how much of anything or anyone particularly might have had. So it's hard to identify numbers. And we know the medieval period, much like the ancient period, had a tendency to inflate numbers because people either guessed at what they were or wanted to make them more impressive than what they were, especially in battles where the, the winner is outnumbered. You want to make that bump that total up so make it even look more impressive. But nonetheless, that's what we've got. So this is what we're working with. I, I kind of lean to a sort of about a middle ground with this because the way it's described, it sounds like Richard's army is much bigger. And there's all this talk about in the chronicles of it being the biggest army ever in England and that kind of thing. So I think they're, they're probably, I would say, over 10,000, I think is a pretty accurate guess. But it is just a guess and no more accurate and no more, certainly no more well thought than what any other academic has come up with or numbers that have been broken forward. I mean, I've seen ridiculous numbers that were quoted by the sources. Well, specifically the bards and that talking about 30,000, but we all know that cannot be the case so with all that said in mind just keep it in mind as this story goes along that richard's army is bigger than henry's considerably bigger in some cases and that will play into what happens as we go through it richard must have surmised that tudor would not break immediately to london as he had initially thought richard may have hoped to confront henry before he got any bigger army so that he could take advantage of his numbers. Also, the king had left Nottingham in full regalia, including his cornet and full plate armor, something very sparsely found on the battlefield at this point due to the immense cost of such armor. And of course, the king of England would definitely want to impress upon others his power and prestige. And certainly one way to do that in the medieval period, especially the higher and later medieval period, is to do it through your armor. And you can imagine he was quite well decked out in that period. On the weekend, as Henry traveled east, he met up with the Stanleys finally. It was said that they met twice, and in their meetings it was pleasant, and more disaffected nobles would join with Tudor because of it. Tudor, of course, 
desperate band had left France a few weeks ago and was now slowly preparing to have a legitimate army ready to face the king. And as more people saw this and more people realized that he was gaining men and material and is actually looking like a serious threat, he continued to gain supporters. At least in some of the references and stories that we see, there is an idea that the Stanleys agreed to help Henry at this point, but we don't have anything firm other than these references after the fact, so it's hard to know for sure. Meanwhile, the two forces slowly closed in on one another, and on Sunday evening, both parties camped close enough to each other to see the firelight from each campfire. The king's forces camped on a hill overlooking the area, while Henry stayed closer to the surrounding villages. After 30 years, the War of the Roses would have its final battle in the Midlands between two men who were children when it started, or in Henry's case, not even alive. The son of Richard of York and the step-nephew of King Henry VI were about to face off with all of England and Wales in the balance. In the night, more men fled from Richard's camp to Henry, one deserter apparently left a note for the Earl of Norfolk to not die supporting Richard, a sign that many believed that Tudor was going to win against what visually appeared to be a more likely result, which is that Richard's overwhelming forces would destroy Henry's. Lots of talk was made in various chronicles and stories about the omens that trailed Richard in the morning of August 22nd. First came his bad dreams, said to be visions of torment and devils. Next, his desire for mass at dawn, which came undone due to a want of bread and wine, the are items needed to do communion. Following that, his breakfast was found to be not ready when it was supposed to be. All of this is claimed because it was claimed that Richard actually got up at 5 a.m. that morning, which had thrown off everybody who were trying to accommodate him at the very last minute this early in the morning. Obviously, in a period of superstition and beliefs in magic and various other things, omens held a strong sway over people and would have a very significant role in how people perceive things. Remember the sun dogs, which were seen before King Edward IV's victory against Jasper Tudor, were seen as a sign of God's trinity and justice rather than the natural phenomenon that they really were. So... Much of this became important to them, and of course, in King Edward's case, became a part of his regalia. So, from the narrative, it makes everything seem pointed against Richard and for Henry. Of course, that many of those who told this story were living under Tudor rule makes it all a bit more obvious, but many recount the story of Richard's rather unrestful night enough do from both sides that you get the impression that he definitely had a terrible night's sleep. Now, of course, someone about to meet into battle, someone who is battle-hardened and understood what was to come, may have had bad dreams, may have had a bad night's sleep. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was an omen or some sign that he knew he was going to lose, rather than it was just a bad night's sleep. Richard, remember, is a very experienced military leader who has won battles in many occasions, was involved deeply with a lot of the later battles that put Edward IV on the throne. So the former Earl of Gloucester knew a thing or two about what was going to come. 
Of course, there may have been one really important reason for things being as hectic and crazed and disorganized for the king and his army that morning, and that was that Henry had decided to use the dawn to begin his march towards their camp. So, in hopes of catching the larger force off guard and his army somewhat scrambling, Henry himself had reason to attack at the first rays of light because it was not all about tactics. At some point the previous evening, Thomas Stanley told Henry that he would not commit his 2,000 men immediately to the battle, but would hang back and come in after the Tudor's forces engaged the king, effectively watching and waiting to see what happened. This would mean that instead of coming in as one great force, they would be coming in a wave, something that Tudor may have feared due to his forces being overwhelmed if Richard got the upper hand. Thomas may just as easily have turned on him as Richard, depending on the situation, and certainly it's not something that could easily be discounted, and knowing the way Thomas worked politically, he could have made every excuse in the book to Margaret about what happened and effectively killed her son with no compunction because it would have served him better than to helping his stepson win the crown. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first, due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.
The Earl of Oxford, of course, was the commander of the forces for Henry. He had suffered a major defeat at the Battle of Barnet in 1471 and likely wanted to now redeem himself and his new king. In order to do that, he formed a smaller force into a narrow but long line to combat the larger forces that were positioned above them. This may have doubled their visual size, at least. He likely was the one that advised attacking when they did, so to try and catch Richard's camp both disorganized and, of course, fuzzy from sleep. But, with some forewarning, the king was able to get his forces formed and cannons on the sides and a large mass of men also arrayed in this same, very similar, huge line. It was at this point that some historians have some historians have shown that there were issues with Richard's forces. Specifically, Richard's army were made up of generally inexperienced soldiers, whereas the Tudor army had their 1,500 French battle-hardened mercenaries and men with experience fighting in France and elsewhere, including in battles in this particular War of the Roses. The last real battle of the war prior to this was 11 years ago for most of the Englishmen on the opposing side. The Battle of Bosworth Field was fought 12 miles or 19 kilometers west of Leicester and 3 miles or 5 kilometers south of Market Bosworth, where the name comes from. Richard's forces, under the experienced Duke of Norfolk, possessioned themselves wisely at the top of Ambion Hill. The small elevation meant that if Henry would attack, he would need to cross a level plain with Marsh on his side before he could climb up this elevation and deal with the hail of arrows and cannons that would be firing at him. Of course, all of this is and has been a loss to time, and it's taken a long time for historians, archaeologists, to identify exactly where everything is. If you look today at where they feel that the battle site actually happened, where they found evidence of these cannons, arrows, different effects of the battle, you can see that the rise that they're going up is not a mountain. It's not even a large hill. It's a bluff. So we're not talking about a massive elevation, but in a period where everybody's on foot, except for maybe a small cavalry, you're not going to have the ability to make time very quickly, especially if your units are wearing armor of some sort. And thus, that kind of firing point would be very easy to pick you off. But this is where the advantage of having started to move before most of the other side was moving gave Henry the time to close the distance to get close enough to make it harder for the artillery to pick them off before they got there. Of course, in this era, cannons are not accurate in the way they are now, so their firing kind of is a little sketchy. So they would have to wait until they're close anyway to be able to really start to create a massive problem for the other army. So in both of these occasions, the elevation, while being helpful, isn't a completely encumbered situation. It's not like Owen Glyndor where he won his big battle where he was at the top of a rather large hill that just made the arrows coming down so much more effective and so much more destructive. In this occasion, it didn't have that quite the same sort of circumstance. As the king brought his various forces, he put them in three groups or what they called back then battles. And he himself led one of these in the center. Norfolk and Northumberland had 
the other sides of the king's center, and each of them led various forces. The Duke, Norfolk's men, were arranged in front of the artillery while the king took center, as I mentioned, and this opposed the mass of Henry's men, who were in one group largely led by Oxford. Of course, as mentioned previously, the men of Thomas and William Stanley stood off from both camps on a hill overlooking the battle, waiting for the opportunity to affect it as it turned out. Oxford had his men clumped together, tight as they could be made, obviously with their lesser amounts, which increased their collective power but likely made them more vulnerable to artillery, something which had been the bane of the Lancastrians in past battles. You can remember in one of the previous battles, they were caught out because they were too close together when arrows started to fall and they started to get picked off one by one. This is where the experience of Lancastrians worked in their favor as they closed in. Norfolk and his army started to advance as the arrows and cannons were firing. Of course, the Lancastrians themselves had their own arrows flying, so Norfolk likely saw this as a ideal opportunity to push them towards the marsh, which was to the side of their troops. I assume the idea being to break the line and to put them back into the marsh so that Tudor men who had been avoiding trying to cross it would now be hazarded by it. Of course, trying to get through a marsh when you're wearing armor and dealing with people firing at you would make your life even more miserable and thus making it easier to stop and stall them. Instead, the experienced forces under Oxford held the line. They did not break and instead became an anvil on which the Duke's men faltered. Walter Devereux, a senior commander of Norfolk, was killed in the fighting. Some of Norfolk's men at this point fled the field, having been truly pushed away and obviously turned and panicked. Historians differ on the reasons for what happened next, but Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, was tasked by Richard to aid in the fighting, likely called in to push from the other side, helping Norfolk likely to either press the attack or help them in their retreat, but Percy instead did nothing. And this is where academic questions abound, and this is where history is both frustrating and fascinating for historians. No one really knows why he did this. Percy certainly did not explain at any point, but at least two suggestions have been made, and both are, if not equally plausible, certainly could be plausible. One, Percy, for personal reasons, his father having been a Lancastrian supporter who had died in fighting on Taunton, as well as the fact that Percy's had previously been a, for a feud with the Nevilles, who had benefited greatly under Edward and Richard, King's wife, of course, being Anne Neville, would have a personal grievance against Richard and his Yorkist followers. But, of course, part of the problem there is is that if he did, why did he end up keeping his lands and continuing to gather men and materials for Richard? Was it simply out of loyalty to England, which, as we've said before, didn't really exist in the medieval period like we think of it now? Or was it simply out of self-interest? Second argument goes that opposing this was a suggestion that his forces, placed where they were by the king, were in no position to take part of the battle because, in order to do so, they had to go through or around the marsh, which would have meant 
taking a very circuitous route that would go around and something that they didn't feel in medieval battles was something that was considered or done very quickly and thus couldn't be met out. I think this one's the more doubtful of the two simply because just because he wasn't able to go through because he was blocked or, or those kind of things, certainly that would be a possibility. But the fact that he did nothing, he didn't march forward, he didn't retreat, he didn't do anything, certainly seems more along the lines of that he was hedging his bets on who was about to win, probably saw that things were on a knife edge and made some personal calculations, which would all very much work out for him. The contention that Percy was in a bad position on a hill and not able to make or move his forces without going through Richards could be feasible, of course, but based on option one, it makes it at the very least suspect. Other academics have pointed out that of the supporters of Richard, he received probably the most gentle treatment. Under a light of rest after the battle, he neither lost his titles nor his lands, something that might point to his loyalties at least being mixed. Of course, Henry made it very clear that one of the conditions for harsh treatment was if you actually participated in fighting him. And of course, Northumberland, having not done that, would have been in a good position comparatively. Much like the Stanleys, we'll never know for sure, and what we do know, of course, is circumstantial at best. I would suggest, however, that because they saw Northumberland unwilling to act, and realizing now that the king was not at such a major advantage, this would have driven the Stanleys to actually act. And this would make this situation even more untenable for Northumberland, who would see this coming battle growing in more disadvantage for Richard. So thus, it would make him even more suspect of actually doing anything or making a move. So in a way, it kind of became a self-fulfilling thing for both sides. Richard is said at this stage to have spotted Henry as the forces engaged again at the base of the hill. At this point, it was suggested that the king had decided to try and break the Tudor army by killing Henry. The idea being, of course, if you take down the head, the rest will fall apart. His initial charge caught the Tudor forces by surprise, and the initial surge took down Henry's standard bearer, who was then killed. Tudor was said to have been unable to fight him for himself, and it was said that he had tried to hide by basically getting off his horse and being surrounded by his bodyguard. The king tried to press home his advantage. Now, of course, the idea that he tried to hide may be more about the fact that he was being told to get down so he could be protected rather than being picked off by the king as he closed in. A reserve of pikemen now came forward, and they put a stop to the king's advance towards Henry. There is some confusion and some uh, interpretation about how many troops are actually in this uh, march towards Henry. Some claim that it was about 1,200 soldiers. Others claim that it was more likely just the king's household of guards, so much more in the hundreds than in the thousand. Either way, this blunt force pushing forward was having an effect and dividing through to try and get to Henry, so much so that it was now forcing the Stanleys to make a move. In part, what had caused this, in all likelihood, was the fact that the king and his men, as they got closer towards Henry, got further and further away from the rest of the army, thus they were able to be stomped out at the opportune moment. 
And it was at this point that the Stanleys finally decided to act, sweeping down from the hill like the riders of Rohan of Lord of the Rings. The Stanleys crashed into Richard's army and targeted the king as their final objective. The king's troops were slowly being pushed towards the marsh, as, of course, they had been isolated. Now all of the armies were pushing them. His forces, being separated, were now being ground down. The advent of Stanley and his moment meant that time had now run out for King Richard. His kingdom was now in serious trouble, and he himself was in serious jeopardy. At some stage, he was thrown from his horse, landing in the marsh that they had all been forced into. The one thing that comes out of this, even with everything that had gone on, was that Tudor chroniclers lauded the king as Richard continued to fight on. As the press of Tudor men continued to close in, he continued to push back as much as possible until he was finally killed. There are, of course, a number of myths surrounding the death of Richard, including who laid the killing blow. Tudor chroniclers would have us believe it was Henry. The poet Gitroglin implies it was Resap Thomas was the one who had killed him. Now, of course, we don't know about the truth of any of this, but what we do know is, is that it appears that Richard had received 11 wounds during the battle and nine of them had been to his head. The likely killing blow had been done by a halberd, which took off part of Richard's skull in the back of his head. Obviously, he would have been unhelmeted at that point, which would have made it even easier to do such a thing. And this would show that both his helmet and his cornet, which he would have been wearing on top of the helmet, were gone. With his death, the army supporting him melted away, and Norfolk was said to have been killed by Sir John Savage in single combat. There was, of course, a great story about how the crown was found in the middle of the mud on thorns, and that explained a lot of other things that came after it, but all that is myth-making Tudor after-the-fact propaganda, so we won't delve into that too deeply. But nonetheless, it was said that Thomas Stanley found the cornet and then offered it to Henry, who was then crowned Henry VII by both right of descent and by conquest. Henry was now the King of England, not Britain, or Wales for that matter, and this meant that he now had control of the land, at least as far as this single solitary moment in time. And now, as we move on from that, we will now follow and see how this king and his court and their heirs treated the new kingdom, and especially their Welsh countrymen and women, as we go forward in the next few episodes to discuss how much the Tudor influence changed Wales and, to be fair, changed all of Britain forever. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you'd like to support the show, you can always do that. Anything is always appreciated. It does help us quite a lot to uh, get the things that we need in order to help with the research. This particular episode took a long time in part because of the amount of research that went into it to make sure I did the best I could to at least accurately account for what was going on. Um, especially when some of the writers are writing one thing and other writers are writing slightly different and you don't really know which one's accurate. So you have to look it up three or four times. Um, place names of course 
being labeled differently. The fact that modern research has changed what we know about this battle, especially about the death of Richard, who, of course, up until 10 years ago, we didn't know where he was, what had happened to him, other than what had been in the Chronicles, which didn't go into lots of detail. So we know a lot more about his death as the last king of England to actually have been killed in battle. And so with all of that, thank you, everybody. And uh, as I said, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you for listening and have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.